This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Now, Richard, today it's difficult but important questions all around. And the main one is to indict or not to indict. That is the question in front of Attorney General Merrick Garland. But it's not a regular indictment. It's one regarding the former president of the United States. So today I want to ask you about the possible process, the possible charges, the political considerations of indicting the former president of the United States. And then we can talk about whether the indictment should go forward. So starting with process. If Mr. Garland believes that the standards to open an investigation into Donald Trump have been met, he could keep the case or he could appoint a special prosecutor. So to you, what would this look like? Should he keep the case? Is there too much of a conflict of interest? And how long would this process take? Well, it turns out there are conflicts of interest both ways. First of all, if you keep it inside the attorney general's office, uh, you then were going to ask the question is what is going to be the level of consultation between the attorney general and the president of the United States and his main political advisors. Um, it's very difficult to maintain a wall of separation between the two of them, but it will certainly give rise to very serious charges of conflict of interest if it turns out that our friend Garland admits that he's talked to the president or his chief advisors and that they recommended going ahead with this particular indictment. Uh, so what that says is maybe we should avoid this problem by appointing a special prosecutor. Uh, but there was this famous case of Morrison and Olson in which Justice Scalia really rose to the occasion when he described the effort to use a special prosecutor who was gunning for Ted Olson. This is a wolf that comes in wolf's closing. That is, what happens is the fatal difficulty or the major objection that you get to special prosecutors is how are these people going to be appointed and who's going to do it. Um, if it turns out that they are appointed by the Attorney General subject to the removal by the uh, uh, judicial branches. Uh, there are two problems. One is the attorney general may well make that appointment subject to influence by the president. So you're back into the original circle. And secondly, once you do that, the ability to regulate what this special prosecutor do is going to be highly limited. They're going to be virtually unlimited budgets. There's going to be a power of the special prosecutor to pick whatever henchmen or women he wants in order to do this thing. If you get somebody who's a kind of a centrist rule of law kind of person, it may go off fairly well. But if you get somebody who has a political agenda of one form or another, it may go off very badly. If you get people where you don't know well enough as to what it is that they're about, you're going to get further kinds of disputes. So it would be a terrible mistake to assume that if, in fact, you get the special prosecutor in there, you could wash your hands of it. Then, as would happen in both these cases, there are many decisions that have to be made after either Garland decides to do it inside the uh, Justice Department or send it out to some kind of special prosecutor. Do you monitor the behavior as it starts to go along? Um, and if so, how is this going to take place? Informally, is it going to take place formally and so forth? Is it the kind of situation where you start making these things in which you would feel that the uh, president should take into account the preferences or the concerns associated with the Republican Party, um, as well as the uh, president, president Trump's kind of situation? 
also difficult. This decision is going to be made, if it's going to be made at all, just before election day. And this is going to be a real question as to whether or not this is going to be thought of a way to either galvanize the Democrats or to galvanize the Republicans. But there's going to be no way, if you do this before a November of this current year, that this decision is not going to have an enormous impact on the political constitution of the United States trying to execute it. To me, uh, looking at all the alternatives, I think it's appropriate to say the first question you ask is not which of these is the better alternative. The first question you ask is whether we ought to consider either of these alternatives at all. And in my own view, just tip my hand, I think the dangers of pursuing previous presidents, even on the strongest of possible charges, is extremely dangerous because we do not want to have a situation where expulsion from office by election even is going to do this. We do have an impeachment promise. It vanished at both times. Under that process, if it turns out that the president is removed from office upon the commission of a high crime or misdemeanor, it is subject to prosecution. Uh, so there's that there. Uh, in this particular case, there was no impeachment. So it's not as though you already have some judgment by a political body, which has both parties, uh, to soften the blow. This is a case in which you're trying to bring the prosecution after it turns out you couldn't get any Republican except Mitt Romney uh, to go along the second time. And where I think the charges that were made on both cases, both in the first and the second impeachment, were extremely weak as charges. And I say this only on the constitutional issues. I think I've made it very clear my own political preferences are as follows. I think it would be an unmitigated natural, national disaster for either Biden or Trump, let alone both of them, to run in 2024. I think they should both be gracefully removed from the political scene. And if that happens, then what happens is you don't have all of the tensions associated with a rather bogus campaign. Biden is no longer going to be able to try to keep his office and Trump is no longer trying to get in. And it turns out at that particular point, why go through this storm and drum when we would rather have no distraction against the serious campaigns that are going to be run first in 2022 and then even more importantly with the presidential election in 2024. Richard, I'm going to push through with you know continuing this hypothetical because well, anything is possible these days in politics. Yes, certainly is. Right. So let's say Mr. Garland does actually go through with this and says, okay, now we've got to figure out if there an adequate evidence to indict Donald Trump. And I think the question is, well, what could he be charged with? And I've been following the, the January 6th committee uh, hearings a little bit, and it's not exactly linked to uh, Attorney General Garland. But broadly speaking, I think the accusations fall into three buckets. There is, um, and again, allegations, right? Falsely claiming that an election was fraudulent and stolen riling up a mob and sending them um, to the Capitol on January 6th. And then there is the one I think would get probably the most, um, well, because it's already ongoing, uh, the most attention, which is pressuring officials to countervail official vote counts or certified slates of electors, um, specifically in the case of Georgia and the Georgia call, a grand jury has been hearing from the parties involved. That That's an ongoing, um, I guess, investigation right now. So Richard, how much trouble is Donald Trump in and would any of these you know, pass muster? Um, well, I mean, past muster is a very difficult question. The first one you say is that Donald Trump fraudulently claimed, right, uh, that the election was rigged. Uh, there are two parts of this. There's one about the truth of his allegations, which he will contest, and the fact that he will say that I made all of these contentions in good faith. Um, this is, in fact, an extremely difficult to 
uh, it's part out. The first thing to say, as is typically the case, and Donald Trump acts like a spoiled child. Whenever he loses, he starts to think. He starts to pout. He starts to rant. He starts to rave. One of the things that the Democrats may try to do is to say what he told his best of all friends that he wanted Trump to be hanged, rather Pence to be hanged. You know, if you're saying that uh, when you're in frustration uh, over drinks at 11 o'clock at night with three of your buddies, I don't think one is going to treat that as particularly powerful evidence of what's going on. What it is, it's proof that uh, Donald Trump uh, should be impeached if immaturity of a terminal nature is in fact an impeachable offense, but immaturity of a former president is not an impeachable offense. So you're going to have a lot of time with respect to the fraud. Uh, take things, trying to pressure people to do sorts of things, calling them up. It's certainly juvenile, uh, but the question is, why is this going to be illegal? It would be illegal if he told Raffensperger or whoever it was in Georgia that he wanted to attack or anywhere else, either you do this, I'm going to subject you to some kind of criminal prosecution. Uh, but if he says, look, I think this is an absolute outrage. And as far as I'm concerned, this whole thing was rigged and you start to disagree with me. I don't think of that as being a criminal offense. I think of that as being incredibly stupid sort of behavior, uh, but I don't see exactly what the illegality is because I don't see the collateral threat that he's going to make that's either express or implied. And indeed, um, you know, he, Trump has only got a couple of days left. It's hard to see how uh, starting sometime in late December or early January that he could mount any kind of a criminal case against these guys, particularly since Bill Barr has already resigned. And then, of course, they're going to try to use the bar evidence against him. Uh, but, you know, this is much more difficult to do than it starts to seem. And here's, I think, the way in which you want to say The first question you asked Mr. Barr, he said, well, you said you thought there was no evidence uh, that this particular election was stolen. I said, what was the evidence that you had available to you at the time that you did this? And then he'll state the date and what he had. And then you say, well, what about the following kind of evidence that was developed after this debate? or which was developed before this particular decision that made of which you had no intention. And so what you're going to do is you're going to say, look, Mr. Barr, you're entitled to have your opinion. Uh, but the fact that you have your opinion and then you tell the president of the United States, I think you're full of hogwash, is not the same thing as basically saying that this guy is right. So what's going to happen is the way in which you take any plaintiff's witness, if you're a good defense lawyer, is you put them on trial for perjury. That is, I can tell you the best defense that you can make in a fraud case is to argue that the plaintiff's witnesses are fraudulent in the opposite direction. And they will go after Barr as hard as you can possibly imagine on this. And then what's going to happen? Well, here's one of the scenarios you have to face. Um, there's been all sorts of claims that what's really going on in this case is that it wasn't fraud in the counting of the ballots that had been cast. It was fraud in the way in which the ballots were brought into the room and put into the system. Mr. Barr, the only thing you had was reports from the Secretary of State that there was an accurate account. Now, can you say that the Secretary of State can assure you that only the ballots that should have been cast were brought into the mix and uh, that there weren't others that were added that should have been kept out or others that were taken out that should have been in there? Uh, tell me, which of the precincts did you look to? Let's then go look at Fulton County, right? And then you have all that incident about the mysterious shutdown and the moving of people back and forth. And now somebody will say, oh, there are all sorts of explanations that you could give for that. It's quite clear that we have run this and we find it. And then the answer is going to become, well, did you get all this stuff done? 
um, before it turns out that uh, uh, you spoke to uh, the press or to the Congress about uh, what you thought the Trump situation? What were these things done afterwards? And oh, by the way, let me say, you're now using this as inculpating evidence. What I would like to do is to see exactly what those reports are. And then in addition, I don't know if you recall this, uh, but during the time that this was going on, if you looked at conservative sites, you'd see all sorts of people saying, well, the ballots were invalid. They had only the presidential thing filled in, not anything else. They had creases in the wrong place, or they didn't have creases whatsoever. Or it turns out they were printed on the wrong kind of paper at the wrong kind of date. Now, People can always dismiss this, uh, but if you're running a criminal prosecution, you cannot be the New York Times and say, all of the furious and fraudulent charges that have been refuted were made by Mr. Trump. He's going to fight you. And in fact, I think it actually hurts the prosecution to have a situation where all the people who essentially have said that there's no evidence in these particular cases are in fact, um, people who have a vested interest in the uh, integrity of the system. So let me put it to you in the following way. Mr. Raffensperger, I gather, is a terrific Secretary of State. He won all sorts of other things. But you're on the other side, right? And the fact that he's a terrific guy doesn't mean that you're going to give him a pass. And so the kind of simple question that you're going to ask him, say, sir, don't you have a serious conflict of interest in this case? And he said, what do you mean? So, well, sir, what happens is if it turns out that you admit that there's some irregularities that took place under your watch, what you're doing is you're compromising and calling into question your own ability. So you have every incentive in order to make sure that you are going to perceive positively by the electorate to say absolutely nothing wrong happened on my watch. And then you look at him and say, well, and you know, given that you were aware of this, were you not on the date? He says, yes, I was aware. Of it. Well, how come you didn't find somebody who was independent of you in order to field these charges? So what's going to happen is you're going to start to say that the reason why Donald Trump got himself into such a lather is that he had figured out that Raffensperger had a great deal to protect himself and he had a conflict of interest. Remember, this is a game in which what you do is you are out to destroy the credibility of your opposition. And there's always something in that particular record that will allow you to do it. I mean, it's easy enough to destroy Trump's credibility. I don't want to say they don't have anything, but I've just given you one witness, right? And all you have to do is to multiply this by everybody else is going to come there. And if you've got yourself a good defendant's lawyer, and I mean somebody who's prepared to take down the ship on the other side, doesn't have it tomorrow who knows how to do this, who is not an ideological lawyer. This is not Sidney Powell. You want to get somebody in there who's a hard-nosed criminal defense lawyer, and you want to push this case against the administration as if there were no special purchase for the New York Times or for the Department of Justice. Garland is a weak leader. I think we all know that. Everybody has kind of commented on it. And so just trying to look at this kind of thing as a trial, it's going to be really crazy. This is not going to be the nine, rather the one six commission in which the other guys didn't bother to show up. They didn't try to cross-examine anybody. This is not going to be a cakewalk. This is going to be one of the bloodiest, toughest kind of situations you have. And the impeachment will come back. You flunked on the impeachment, didn't you? You wouldn't even charge him with insurrection, even though the word was around. So now what you're doing is your Justice Department is bringing a set of charges against this man about insurrection, which you couldn't get the Congress to believe. You have to explain why you're going beyond 
uh, the impeached failure uh, in order to make changes that even then you would not start to do. And so it goes. Now, you mentioned some other charges. I mean, remind me. Oh, oh the incitement charge, right? Well, oh, I think you've covered this. Oh, well, you know, we could spend an hour on that, too. All right. First point. Uh, what happens is there's Donald Trump. There are lots of people there. There is now a technology available which allows you to take any given person and to trace that person's speech and movement uh, during the event and beforehand. So what will happen is somebody's going to say, look, uh, our good president is sitting there back, um, not at the Capitol, but on some lawn in front of the White House. It's a mile away. There are lots of people out there. And here's the following exhibit. We see Mr. Smith urging people uh, to go into and to upset the Capitol building. You then get an idea on this guy and it turns out he's a Democrat. You then get a further idea on this guy and you say, mysteriously, he was not somebody who was prosecuted uh, by this current administration. And we can prove, by the way, that they're selective because these guys never prosecuted anybody who was engaged in acts of violence when they were in Portland and Seattle. So we know they're corrupt from start to finish is what they're gonna say. And I say, well, uh, if this guy was in charge of this, are you going to charge the activities of a Democratic operative to encourage people to go into the uh, Capitol building to the president of the United States? Or is this going to be an intervening cause in which it turns out the Justice Department has been utterly corrupt, they are going to argue? because it has failed to go after people who have been known and identified to it, who have had exactly this role where the incitement is much more unambiguous than anything that Trump said. Remember, Trump simply said, you've got to go there and fight by telling them that you want them to do something through your elected representative. He did not say, I want to go there and to fight and to blow up the doors. And you cannot infer that from the particular statement. You now have to do it by implication, by the fact that he didn't say people to come back. I mean, I think his behavior is reprehensible from top to bottom. That's not the issue. The question is whether or not it turns out to be criminal. And if you are a good defense lawyer, you will split this event down into literally hundreds of small little episode. And then what you will do is you'll do it on the other side. Who opened the doors? Well, could these doors be opened from the outside? If not, who opened them from the inside? Why did it happen? And then slowly you will start the demand about going through this thing. How many of these people will commit upon taking selfies as opposed to doing other sorts of things? Uh, it will be essentially, if you're a defense lawyer, you break the action down into small little bits so that you can basically uh, explain the ambiguity associated with, with each of those particular things. So I think we've kind of covered the fraudulent stuff, the pressure stuff, and so forth. On all three of these charges, it's going to be a battle royal to try to win. And my view about it is it will fail. Uh, and then there's the other question. Hey, it will fail if you're broader than Oklahoma, but suppose you bring it in the D.C. of District of Columbia, where it turns out you have... 97% of the people are registered Democrat. And you got a Democratic governor, you know, president who's obviously against him, a uh, the Justice Department guy, Merrick Garland, who's obviously annoyed at the Democrats, at the Republicans for keeping him off the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. It's not really a very appetizing practice. To me, I don't care about all those details. I think it is a cosmic mistake for anybody to want to prosecute a 
former president if you've not been able to get him through the impeachment process. So I am quite strongly opposed to this. I mean, I was certainly not in favor, I should let you know, of having the impeachment charges brought against Bill Clinton. I thought this was a frivolous kind of situation. And even though I think he did a lot of very scrawny looking things after he was removed from office, it's fine to disbar the man, but I would have been strongly opposed to a criminal charge under those kinds of circumstances. Once you do that, then it turns out that you're really going to have to worry about crackpot dictatorships and banana republics. And I don't think that in order to get Mr. Trump, this should be there. What I would hope that Trump would do, which I know he will not do, is to say, look, I've seen this situation. I've been a source of a real mess. I'm going to make the political climate a lot better in the United States by announcing I'm not going to run for president. And it would be really wonderful if Joe Biden did the same thing. Neither man is, in my judgment, fit to hold office. And I hope that they will come to recognize it sooner rather than later. Well, Richard, thank you for that preview of the defense's argument and a reminder of why I do not hang around uh, courtrooms or lawyers. Oh, you certainly wise man. Yeah, wise man. Thank you. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.